Welcome to Writish, the one-stop shop on your writer journey where we discuss everything writing-related from shiny new ideas through publication. Whether it's on the indie or traditional path and the ish of life that fuels and sometimes gets in the way of our creative pursuits. I'm Zara, a self-published author of young adult and new adult fiction and alumni of the NYU Master's in Publishing program and the founder of Inimitable Books, LLC, a new book publisher dedicated to uplifting marginalized voices without forcing authors to spotlight their trauma. I'm Kelly, a genre-hopping writer, trier of hobbies, and a debuting author fall of 2023. It is my great pleasure to introduce Sean Desmond, the publisher of 12 Books, part of Grand Central Publishing and Hachette Book Group. He is the author of Adam's Fall, which was adapted into the film Abandoned, and he was my book publishing professor in my first semester of the NYU Master's in Publishing program back in fall 2020. Hi, Zara. Hi, Kelly. It's so good to be with you guys today. Thank you so much for agreeing. No problem. Not gonna lie. I was like a little bit like nervous just because like I get so anxious and but I'm over the nerves and I think we're, we're gonna have a good time. Opening with the first question, what was a book that made you realize you wanted to get into the publishing industry? Thank you guys again for having me. And I have to say that being in book publishing makes sense in the sense that I've always loved books, even as a little kid hanging around libraries and bookstores. So first thing, are you a book person? Are you guilty by association with books? And then I love you know, reading literature and poetry. I was an English major. And then you graduate from college and you realize, besides reading and writing, that you really have no skills. <laughs> Again, book publishing, perfect for me. But in terms of a book, there were two that I read and worked on early in my career that sort of told me to keep going. Back in the 20th century, I was an editorial assistant to an editor at W.W. Norton named Jerry Howard. And very early on in my working for Jerry, he put two manuscripts on my chair. One was Fight Club, and the other was Train Spotting. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. And I couldn't believe how cutting edge and expressive they were. And it was then reading those two books and small literary claim to fame. If you read an American edition of Train Spotting, there is Train Spotting is written in Scott's dialect. So there is a glossary in the back. And so I had to call Irvin Welsh, the author, and ask him basically what all of these words in sort of Scott's dialect meant. Well, they all mean asshole. <laughs> so I'm not sure we needed the glossary, but anyhow, that's my literary claim to fame is that I put the glossary in train spotting for Jerry. But that's when I knew I was, uh, I wanted to be in publishing were those two books. That's awesome. A lot of people in our audience are wondering why traditional publishing's timeline is so much longer than that of indie publishing. You know, obviously they can Google things, but we'd rather hear it directly from you. Sure. The first part of it, it does take a long time for the agent to find the connection to the right editor. And submission process, it takes not just weeks, it takes months. It can almost take up to a year. On the two novels that I wrote, I got... 15 rejections on one, 20 on the other. That took several months to find the right person. And thank God we did. But also the timeline for publishing a book, there's kind of two answers why it takes so long. There's a lot on the calendar already. Every publishing house, Putnam, 12, 
Knopf, FSG, they have they have their house authors already. They've been around for a while. And so they continually publish those people. And you have to find a clean, well-lighted space to introduce new voices. And then the second thing is the sales cycle. So in big four publishing, it is looking out nine months to a year. And sometimes the selling they're selling books right now that are going to be published in six months. And part of the reason is that the mass merch accounts like Target, Costco, they are planned out months and months in advance. And so the big houses are driven by that. And so if you think about it, it makes sense. Like the big houses have big fiction authors, James Patterson, John Grisham. They want the copies in a Costco. Costco wants to plan out June and July of 2022 right now. And so everything moves forward based on that, including first fiction, nonfiction, all the other stuff. But basically, it's the sales cycle is why we take so long to get a book sold in and published. Obviously, we were talking about like the author's side of publishing and like waiting and like why that process takes so long. So what's the publisher's side of... Okay, so I do pretty much exclusively nonfiction acquisition at 12. 12 is a nonfiction imprint. It's known for its politics, its history, its current affairs. We also do biography, memoir, some sports, some science. We do all the big nonfiction categories, business. And in nonfiction... It tends to be similar to fiction at the acquisition stage in the following ways. There are lots of things to consider when the manuscript comes in on submission from the agent or the proposal. More often, it's a proposal in nonfiction. But these are the basics. Is it a great idea? And is the writing good? Okay, those are almost givens. Does the author have a platform and or... Does that platform allow the author to engage with an audience? More and more, that sort of asks the question, does the author have self-promotional genes that we could enhance at 12 with our publicity and marketing efforts? So you'll read a manuscript, a novel, a proposal for a book about politics, and you'll like it. And you'll give it to the people you work with to read, and they like it. And so eventually this leads to a phone call or a Zoom with the author, right? The final thing is the most important, which is, is it a fit? You're going on a blind date here. You're both shopping and selling to see, you're shopping to see if this author has it and if, frankly, if you like, you'd like to work with them, right? And that's like one of the most important things is like, is the chemistry that you could have with the author and if if you guys get along and stuff like that when it gets to that stage. But those are the basic things. And, uh, you know, book publishing is about people. as That's one of the themes I think we'll talk about today. At a certain point, the acquisition becomes about, do I want to work with this person? Is this an author who I think I can both work with, but also really get behind, get in the canoe with and support and keep uh, rowing the, in the rowing and upstream against all, all of the currents. That's what you're looking for. I'm kind of speechless. (laughs) 
I am too. I'm just like I'm taking it all in. <laughs> I tell Zara all the time. I'm just this little woman from Appalachia. I've never been around like all this stuff, <laughs> and it's just really amazing sometimes. And I just like am in awe of some of the answers and stuff that we get. Oh, good. Well, as as long as you like the answers. I understand this from our class and, you know, some of the other classes I've taken in the program, but a lot of our writer friends and Kelly, who's a visual artist, they want to know a little bit about book covers. Are there in-house designers? How much does the author have a say in it? I know you're not, you know, the, the marketing team or the sales team. Mm-hmm. But can you just talk a little bit about that in book publishing in general, and then maybe a little bit about you as the publisher of 12 books, like how involved you get? Sure. The book cover process and the art process, it does start with every imprint, every publishing house has an art director who designs the jackets themselves, has designers that work for that department and design the jackets, or farms them out to what is a community of freelancers who also work in publishing and work on, at other houses. So the simple answer is there is an art department at a publishing house that starts the jacket. And what I would like to say about this is, yes, the author has a definite say. I've been lucky. I've worked with really great art directors. But every cover that you see has gone through a committee. Okay, Does the author like it? Does the publisher like it? Does sales like it? Very important vote from sales. And each cover could get snagged along the way. Or it becomes, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way, a series of compromises, right? Add a reading line. Fix that subtitle. We need a quote on here. We need a different typeface over the image. It's a process like everything else in book publishing. Sometimes the committee does good work, but sometimes it's a series of compromises that water it down. The best covers... I think, start with a great art director who can really execute on ideas. You get it on the first or second try, and that's it. And you're now improving on what's already a great execution, as opposed to the committee, which could sometimes feel like diminishing returns. Having a great art director like we do at 12, more often than not, we just nail it, and it's good. But yeah, the author definitely has a say. It's usually in the contract, it says consultation, I have never written the email or the text that's like, I know how you feel about this jacket, but we're going with it anyway. I always try to get the author's approval on the cover before we go forward. So I feel like that definitely dispels the myth of whenever you traditionally publish, there's absolutely no say (laughs) for the author, because I feel like that's one of the things that gets brought up a lot. There are places in the publishing world where the author has less say. I haven't worked in genre fiction or in in romance, sort of like a factory for that kind of publishing, where they're throwing, you know, Fabio's on various covers. (laughs) (laughs) And this one's a werewolf biker gang, and this one is a Amish, you know, sort of forbidden love affair. And they know it so well, they know how to do it. There, the author may have less say, but I don't know. That's not my experience. My experience has always been get the author on board and the author should have a ton of say. 
how does a publisher decide how much marketing and publicity goes behind each book? I'll be honest. Most houses sort of factor publicity and marketing dollars as a percentage of the author's advance. So the bigger the advance, the more the spend on publicity and marketing to make that back. And if you think of it in terms of movies, that makes complete sense, right? Like a big Marvel movie might cost $250 million to make. They're going to spend $100 million or more making sure they return that investment. And it's not always the same in books. It's not always 100% the case. Sometimes in the fiction realm, you could have like a make book campaign where you're spending a lot of your money in marketing efforts. And that could be where the weight of your budget is. I will say this, that it's a small percentage, okay? It's somewhere in the range of like 5% of the advance. So the author should also be thinking of what can I do that is publicity, free and earned promotion for the book, and what marketing programs can the publisher support, which is paid and directed at certain readerships. An audience member asked, can a book get more marketing if the author takes a lower advance? Because like, you know, you're paying the author less. So could that money then be allocated to more marketing? You could definitely make a deal with a publisher to say, you're paying me this much advance, but I also need a promotional or marketing commitment of X number of dollars. In my experience, it's been like, I work with this publicist. I want that person to be hired for at least three months during the campaign. Those publicists usually cost like ten, fifteen thousand dollars a month. So that could be like upwards of fifty thousand dollars in allocation of your publicity budget. I wouldn't recommend to authors taking less advance as a trade-off, but I would say that you could ask for it. A lot of publishers, it depends on the clout, the competitive environment of your sale. Like if there's several other publishers like with interest or you're in an auction situation where you have the leverage, then that's a great place to say, like, I need a $25,000 publicity budget commitment, or I need you to hire, or I need you to do ten dollars to $15,000 worth of social media advertising. It's hard for a first-time author to go in there and ask for these things and I wouldn't trade off the advance for it. I might take my last payment of advance and squirrel that away as like, this is what I'm going to spend on my publicity and marketing, you know, five, $10,000, something to get your Facebook going, your Instagram boosted, whatever it is. I always heard bookmarks, like authors doing bookmarks and taking them to like local libraries. Publishers are pretty good at doing bookmarks or tchotchkes, as I would call them, anything that is like a giveaway, a postcard, a flyer, a little remembrance of the book. That's good sort of grassroots marketing stuff. And the publisher can pay costs only a couple hundred bucks, right, to make them. Mm -hmm. It's something an author could do for cheap, but it's also a pretty easy ask of a publisher. The next question, you kind of touched on it earlier with this interview, whenever we were talking about how some publishing houses already kind of have their authors. Mm -hmm. How often do you publish debuts versus authors you've already worked with? In nonfiction, there's less repetition. We don't have the serial 
nature of fiction, where if you publish Harlan Coben, you're publishing that person at least once a year and sometimes many times. Nonfiction is more one-offs. In my training and my experience in book publishing, I like to go out and get stuff. I don't like to have my list entirely fed by literary agents. So I would say 25 to 33% of my stuff is debut nonfiction at 12. I've had some success at 12 with certain authors and that we do repeat, but there is room for first time and debut non-recurring nonfiction. I'd say it's a quarter to a third of the list. That's the trick, right? As an aspiring writer, you want to be at a great house, but the reason they're a great house is probably because they have a lot of successful authors they're already taking care of. So do they have the bandwidth to give you the clean, well-lighted space? So maybe your opportunity as an aspiring writer is to look for a place that's up and coming or a new fiction editor just landed there. And now we know that person has to acquire books in order to keep their job. And so you're looking for a growth list as opposed to a finished list. Our next question is, what do you do if you don't take an author's next book? Now, you just said that, you know, a lot of nonfiction can normally be one-offs, but then you said that you do have some repeat authors. Right. And I know, at least with fiction, a contract can have first option of the next book. Sure. So if you don't take the author's next book that they deliver to you, how does that affect your publishing slate for a season? And do you give the author another shot at delivering something? Or do you just say like, okay, we're parting ways. Right. So I'm not sure for your listeners how much of this will be a shock or not news to them, but let's start with the bad news, which is most books don't work. Okay. And it sucks to get to that moment where you can't re-sign an author because their last book didn't sell well or you don't have the support from your colleagues to re-up and try again. I always try to re-up with my authors on new ideas, but it can be tough when you get a sales track that is either declining or non-existent or just didn't connect with the marketplace. So maybe then we try something else, right? We try a different idea or we frame their next book differently. We package it differently. I always try. Now, Sometimes we're met with success and that author leaves anyway because that success then gives them more opportunities to test the market and get more money. That's totally fair. That's the kind of free market economy we live in, in book publishing. But more often than not, you are trying, and this is where my hat's off to fiction editors because they try to break people out more than nonfiction editors do. Nonfiction, it's sort of, as I said, more of a one-off situation. If it works, you'll go to a second or third book. Fiction, it can be a long build. Jillian Flynn had two or three books, you know, before Gone Girl, and it built over time. And so you have to have someone with patience to get there. Now, I think all of Jillian Flynn's stuff was met with success, and it grew in a nice way. And then Gone Girl went and exploded. But more often than not, seven or eight out of 10 times, you're met with, this one kind of worked, but then we took a step back in sales. So what do we do on the next one to correct for that? And you're doing more up and down, or you're getting positive and negative feedback from the marketplace. So a good editor is just trying to sharpen the ability of the author to reach readers. 
and, and to find the best ideas and be successful. But you do get to a point where it, it really does suck not to be able to re-sign somebody. My point is you have to be resilient to be a book editor and a writer because <laughs> you're met with a lot of rejection and stuff that doesn't work. How much reading do you get to do as the head of a publishing house versus an acquiring editor who works for you? A lot. Just to do politics, history, and current affairs, I read like three or four papers a day. I read a lot of political newsletters like Playbook and Axios. I go through Substacks. I go through social media accounts for all my authors to see what they're writing about. I'd say I do two hours of background reading a day just to keep up with the news. That doesn't include editing and looking at copy or jackets or writing, you know, catalog copy, all of that. That's another two or three hours a day. The editing could be more than that if it's a long book. So there's a lot of reading. When things come in on submission, nonfiction, we have the luxury of having most of that come in under proposal. And proposals are 20, sometimes 40 pages. They're not that long. So you can get through proposals pretty quick. And now that I've been doing this for over 25 years, I can make determinations that pretty quickly, too, as to like what I think is going to work. But I would say my weekend reading is a lot of proposals and a lot of that work. And that's another, you know, all of this is done in like two to three hour chunks during the day when you can. And then the rest of the time is filled with meetings, supporting the staff at 12, getting through scheduling and presentations and normal job stuff. Everyone has it, right? Financial results, stuff like that. But I'd say two hours of background reading, three to four hours of editing and working on the books, and then new stuff coming in the door is kind of like a whole afternoon on the weekends. So that's like three or four hours. It's a lot during a week. And everyone thinks that Zara doesn't sleep. <laughs> <laughs> In the intro of our podcast, I always say that I'm a self-published author because I am, and I didn't really advertise that fact in the program Yeah, because I didn't want you and the other professors kind of being like, oh, like, what is she doing here? I think I'm one of the few people who, you know, wants to work in traditional publishing while also doing indie. Mm -hmm. But how do you, as someone who works in the traditional publishing space, feel about writers choosing to self-publish? I totally get it and respect it. As a writer myself, I've thought about that track many a time. Like, why don't I just go and do this? I know what I'm doing, right? The one thing I'd recommend is be comfortable being uncomfortable as a writer. Meaning, even if you're doing the self-publishing route, and you're writing several genre novels, or you're on your third or fourth book, I would still test the fences for traditional publishing. I would still do writing courses. I would still be getting feedback so that I could grow as a writer. I do think that the self-publishing route, there's less feedback. And so I worry about whether you're growing as a writer and developing your craft. I think you could totally do it, but I would workshop. I would keep getting better. The great thing about having the traditional publishing apparatus is you're getting constant feedback about how to position the book, what works, what's the selling line for the book, 
What's the, as we were talking about covers, what's the visual, what's the movie poster for your book? What are you trying to, is it a shark coming up from the deep? Is it an alien? And they're, you know, in space, no one can hear you scream. What's the tagline? What's all of those things and having professionals help you with that as you're growing and learning? That's the great thing about book publishing. I totally get and respect the self-publishing route. Just test the fences, test your own creativity and make sure that you're growing as you go from one book to the next. So the next one is an audience question that kind of goes with what we were talking about, but I feel like it kind of goes in deeper. Mm -hmm. If someone has self-published or has expressed being open to self-publishing, does that affect your decision to sign them? Not entirely. I will tell you what the bias is in the back of my head when you say like you're a self-published author. And again, I'm a nonfiction person. So I'll go and look at what those nonfiction titles you've put on Amazon and see if they cannibalize the current idea under submission. Because sometimes that's what it is. It's like I tried out this book about, just making this up, about Tesla, and I wrote it. And I put it up for five bucks on Amazon. And now here I am with another Tesla proposal. And my suspicion with the self-publishing is, is this person trying to repurpose? an old idea or is self-published also code for has tried traditional publishing and it hasn't stuck. So I'm worried now that this person doesn't have the goods. I'm just being completely honest. I'm not trying to be judgy. No, that's what we want. That's why we have these interviews. Yeah. I'm just telling you, I wouldn't lead and advertise with self-published, but maybe somewhere in the bios or marketing material say, like, I have written these other books. When you're selling one thing, it's hard to get one idea or one thing across in any regard. I might focus on that one thing and not be fully advertising or verbose about all of these other things that I self-published as well. It's different in fiction. It's a whole different world in fiction. I'm just saying in nonfiction, I'm looking again at good writing, good idea, platform with engagement with readers, a through line of that, a growth pattern on audience size, and can I work with this person or do I like all of these ingredients in the pot together. I think what you touched on with depending on the author, if they did indie just because they tried traditional and it didn't seem to work out and they weren't patient enough because I always say traditional publishing is more like a marathon. Mm -hmm. And I believe in a past episode, I can't remember off the top of my head, but Zara and I have talked about this multiple times about how if you want to do indie publishing, that's great. If you want to do traditional, that's great. But don't do one or the other for like the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. And mainly that's like with indie authors who just self-publish a book because they're wanting to like hurry up and rush the process. And what was a few other things there that we talked about? Because I think this maybe was in the Jesse Elliott episode. Yeah, we've talked a lot about anything that you're doing in public. You have to have the right reasons because it is going to be slow and frustrating. Yeah. As an underlying sentiment, it is a slow process. Totally true. And you can't rush it. Focus on the things you can control. The quality of your product, the quality of your pitch, 
the friendliness and openness to change revisions and ideas to make things better. You can't control agents and editors. You throw stuff into submission and it feels like a void that we have less control over. So we do the best we can, right? Yeah, exactly. For assignment one in our intro to book publishing class, you had us try and convince a publisher to acquire a book. And that involved a lot of things that we don't have time to go into now. (laughs) But one of those things was talking about how we think the publisher could successfully publish a book. And you asked us to talk about the different formats. Yes. So how do you think about that? Because obviously with fiction paperbacks are priced differently than hardcovers and ebooks and then with nonfiction, I feel like sometimes it's more expensive and other times it's surprisingly not mm-hmm. so how do you do that well I'll just tell you how I view it I'll give you the big five perspective or my perspective in big five publishing I'm a creature of the 20th century and I think hardcovers first Okay, so I'm a frontless-driven nonfiction editor in Big Five Publishing. And the first question for any book publisher is, what will people spend $30 to read? And that's a really difficult question. I don't know the answer even half the time. But if you figure that out, you're going to be fine. And then when you get to eBooks, what I think of is there's an undiscovered country of digital storytelling that's out there. I think Kindles are fine, but ebooks are just books, right? They're just different format. I think ebooks could be much cooler and hyperlinked and interactive, but no one has really made that model work yet. Or I I haven't seen it if it does exist. There was a guest speaker in one of my classes and I'm now blanking on it, but he was talking about trying to do that for kids books and it sounded cool, but he also said that it takes forever. Yeah. It's hard. You know, when I was growing up, we had Choose Your Own Adventures, which were, you know, you get to the end of one route on the story tree, and it's like, if you decided to go into the Cave of Time, turn to page 33. If you did not, and then, like, seven out of eight of the endings are bad, you know, and you try to get to the one good one, so you're always cheating in Choose Your Own Adventure. (laughs) But, but, um, uh, but yeah, there's like, there's a lot of cool things you could do with eBooks. It's treated by most big five publishing as an ancillary version of the hardcover. And it has been during the first 10, 15 years of the digital switchover in book publishing, but that that'll change. Would you say that audiobooks are treated third best or is that changing now? I think it's the growth of all the formats because somebody figured out that iPhones are really, again, apologies for the 20th century reference, pocket radios. So I love that people listen to books. I listen to books at the gym. I listen to nonfiction stuff that I don't have time to read. So I love the audio format, and there has been a lot of growth there. I don't know the retention of readership or listenership for audiobooks, but I think it's great, and that's a very promising thing. And also audiobooks can, you know, there are more things that you can do. You could have fun narration. Let me recommend to you World War Z by Max Brooks is an audiobook that has multiple narrators in it because it's an oral history. So Max got a lot of 
folks from Hollywood, people whose names I can't remember now, but I, I think, what's his name? Luke Skywalker. Mark Hamill. Mark Hamill, thank you. And a couple other, Carl Reiner, I think. I think that he got a lot of different voice talent to do that book with, and it's really cool to listen to. Very, very cool. So there's like fun and creative stuff you can do in audiobooks. And then paperbacks, I think I love to read paperbacks. I think about great novels. I think about genre fiction. I think about underlining stuff and scribbling in the margins. I think, and that makes me realize something. Paperbacks are disposable. A paperback still costs only about a dollar to make. It's pretty cheap. But guess what? Cheap you get Shakespeare. Cheap you get James Joyce, you know, or Fitzgerald. And paperbacks are the best. So I think of that as like how you hook people to read. You know, who becomes a book person? It usually starts with the paperbacks. That was definitely me. I had so many paperbacks that I've since given away, which I now regret, but <laughs> I had so many. I have to purge every so often myself. It's not enough room for all of them. I think all my Percy Jackson books, which the books that got me into reading are all paperback now that I'm thinking about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? Cheap, disposable but very convenient. Mm -hmm. As a publisher, you do have to think of a book as a product, an actual thing you get people to buy at a certain price point, which we, Sarah, we talked about that in class. And I don't have all the answers for that. It is strange sitting around thinking, what would people spend 30 bucks to read on, right? Yeah. When movies cost the same, it's tough. People spend that on Netflix and don't blink. And it's kind of like the same way to me where people will binge watch an entire season of a show. But if you made a book adaptation into a movie that long, except for the diehard fans, everyone would be like, no way. Yeah. It's like you just binged Shadow and Bone, which is eight hours. (laughs) Clearly you would have been okay. Well, Netflix is much more passive. Like you don't even have to push a button to get to the next episode. It just keeps going. (gasps) And books are just such much more of an active engagement. If we were all three of us were working at the loom all day, a George Eliot novel would seem like the greatest thing ever. (laughs) (laughs) I had to read The Mill on the Floss in undergrad. (laughs) Not an endorsement of Mill on the Floss, but (laughs) which I have read, actually. So funny that you mention it. I would go with Middlemarch, which is a great novel. But I'm just saying that, like, it is a format that was from a different era you know and so it is hard to compete with netflix you have to train people how to read novels netflix you just anyone who's got a screen can do netflix right oh this is great Is there a fixed amount of editing for any books that you are considering picking up You know, because I'm in nonfiction and I work mostly from proposals, most proposals come with a writing sample or a sample chapter. So you get a sense, but I just want to say it's different in fiction where you have to get into the read. If you're not hooked in five pages, it's going to be hard to hook you in 50. But you could, it happens. Fiction's different. Nonfiction, you definitely need to put your best foot forward in a 25 page proposal. Obviously, the first five pages are key. So those have to be polished. I do think that you have to have a sense of outline in a good nonfiction proposal. A good nonfiction proposal is kind of like the New Yorker story that you love to read about a subject, plus a chapter outline, 
plus this really great marketing platform. Here's how we're going to sell this thing. And if your writing has good polish to it, again, it's the marrying of a great idea with good writing, then you're going to be fine. It should be very polished. That's not to say there aren't times where, okay, we'll pick that up in the editing process. That happens a lot for my colleagues who do sort of pop culture or celebrity books. So someone who is like a famous actress or singer, and they have a journal where they sort of record their thoughts and their ideas, but it's very unpolished. A good editor in that space could find the thread and be like, you know what this book should be? (laughs) This book should be your journal plus annotations of your songs or how each journal entry matches up with the song. An editor can now start to sort of build the book around raw material like that. In politics, history, current affairs, memoir especially, biography, you kind of want to see a lot of polish on the writing to begin with. Also, editors, as they get older, I should say, young editors are hungrier and willing to do more editing and more work on their projects to get the project. Older editors are entering into this like virtuous cycle where they can hopefully establish themselves and work with really good writers. And really good writers take care of a lot of these problems, right? They just write themselves into polish, and you don't have to do as much work line by line. And you're doing more macro editing, which is move this chapter here, or have you thought about the beats of the story should not be ABC, but D-B-C-A, you know, or something like that. So the next question, I, I'm going to admit this, and I've never had this in an interview before. I kind of hate that I'm asking the question because as someone who wants to work in traditional publishing, has been in the NYU Master's in Publishing program, has had internships with small publishing companies and then also literary agencies, I know that everyone in publishing is in it for the love of it. Obviously, it doesn't pay well enough to be in it for really any other reason. (laughs) But the question is, do publishers care more about marketability than having real relationships with authors? Because I think the perception is that once you get an agent, like, okay, they care about you, but maybe your publishers only cared about the bottom, cares about the bottom line. Mm. This is like a key question and really difficult because, and I can see it with empathy from both sides, having been a writer and also been an editor and a book publisher for a long time. So let's just start with what an editor does. And Sarah, you'll remember from our class together, a good book editor or a good book publisher is a concierge, a therapist, and a lifeguard. I really like that part of the presentation. <laughs> Thank you. Well, just to explain it, concierge is, as an editor, your first job is to get the, the author what they want, right? They want their book published. They want it to be successful. Got it. As they say at the Marriott, my answer is yes. So now what is your question? Be a good concierge. Author care is of the highest value to every book editor. And and it isn't like a commercial markability instinct. Those things Hopefully you've bought the book, you've paid the advance. Those things are taken for granted at this point in the process. Now you're just trying to help the author. The second thing was therapist. Let's face it, writing is kind of a neurotic, lonely process. A lot of 
tunnels to go down, a lot of tunnel vision, a lot of worry, fear, and frankly, writing is still, for anyone who in the sixth grade, seventh grade, or whatever, got their first paperback and it was a, a sea of red marks, it hurts. It hurts to hear your writing isn't good because you feel it's some sort of reflection on your thinking, your intelligence, you, your story. So you have to cast out these demons, which is not really therapy. That's more exorcism. You have to have a talk with somebody about what writing is trying to get at. And that's what an editor does, is they've talked them through a process that is full of doubt and hyper (laughs) self-awareness, which is writing. And then finally, because you're lonely as a writer, you need somebody to be your lifeguard, which means keep you away from bad ideas or, or don't do that or don't say it that way or here's another idea for how we could promote it or don't go with this cover because it will have this negative connotation. So you have to protect an author from themselves because all authors get a little bit myopic in terms of the, their writing and they need that outside perspective to help them. How is it that you decide which books will be published at what time? So this is easy in nonfiction. There's two main selling seasons in the calendar. The big one is holiday, which runs from, I'd say, mid-October through the end of the year. That's where you put your big fiction tent poles. That's where you put the stuff that is a gift. Holiday is our biggest selling season. The second biggest is sort of in April, because the Mother's Day tables go up in mid-April, then ends mid-June with Father's Day. And then that graduation season, you'll see books like our own very successful Make Your Bed by Admiral McRaven, which is like a perennial now, or Oh, the Places Will Go, the famous graduation gift book by Dr. Seuss. Those are the two main seasons. There's other seasons. Obviously, there's summer reading. There's the New Year, New You season where you get a lot of diet books or fitness books, people making resolutions to make themselves better. So you see a lot of self-help. And that's kind of the calendar because everyone in publishing knows that you try to find sort of counter-programming or off times, especially for debut or first books by an author. So August, which used to be a completely dead time because everybody, frankly, in New York publishing goes away on vacation, August is becoming more valuable as real estate for both fiction and nonfiction. February is a great place to publish not just Black History for Black History Month, but a lot of debut fiction, books that get ahead of that mom's, dad's, and grad's corridor. So you'll see sometimes in February... In March, you'll see a lot of business titles or stuff that, if it starts working, it might carry over into moms, dads, and grads. In political books, you have election seasons, and so you don't want to publish anything on election day, but you want to publish around election day, because if the results goes one way or the other, you might have a book that hits or catches that lightning. Yeah, so that that's, that's the kind of... Uh, That's the kind of thinking that goes into when books go on sale. I like that little explanation because I wasn't sure how different nonfiction was from fiction whenever like planning because Sarah and I were looking at something the other day where we were trying to pin down like 
We were planning uh, a very future season of the podcast and we wanted to focus on fantasy and we were trying to figure out if there was a National Fantasy Month, which according to Google, I couldn't find. And then we were looking at when some of the biggest fantasy books have been published and there were a surprising number in June through August. I'm not surprised for summer reading that they're there. Fiction has more dates on the calendar than nonfiction in that regard in terms of tying into events, holiday, what have you. Fiction can be published anything, but I'll tell you, when you're building your list at a house, this is not proprietary information, this is me just making stuff up, but at Grand Central, we published David Baldacci, and usually you're going to figure out when to publish David Baldacci and then Harlan Coben, and you're looking around Big Five Publishing to see when Doubleday is going to publish John Grisham, Scribner is publishing Stephen King, you're going to make sure your dates are not competing. And so in fantasy, and you're going to have to give me some fantasy authors to fill this equation in. (laughs) But if I'll give you some old examples, but Robert Jordan was published on a certain day every year by Tor for the Wheel of Time. I'll bet you that they checked that date against when Frank Herbert's book or like an Ursula Le Guin or somebody else big in fantasy was publishing. You kind of want to keep the big trees spaced apart. Then once the big trees are spaced apart, then the little trees get planted. That's how a publishing house sort of figures out its list. You know, everybody, because we were talking about the sales cycle as being six to nine months ahead. So Edelweiss, which is the online digital catalog, you can go and look what on-sale dates things are on. If you get two proposals and they're similar, do you take them both or do you choose only one to avoid cannibalizing the sales? It depends. Most of the time, I think you want to make one bet, bet on one horse. Now, in political books, you might have several bets in the same area in the, re- in the last four years, not only across Big Five, but in within houses, there have been several books about sort of Trump craziness that you could differentiate or have different takes on that you could do that you could have like a book here by Mary Trump and then down the road from a book by Bob Woodward and they're both about Trump right but they have different takes and you separate them out on the list into different months but if I got two proposals in on the exact same topic let's say Zara give me a topic women in the civil war I would definitely either bet on one horse or, strangely enough, I would be like, I don't know which one's going to get to market first, right? Or is this going to be a is this going to be a competition? And this happens a lot in book publishing where several people fall on the same idea, and then it becomes literally a race to get there to be both first and best in the marketplace, and so that can that can create anxiety and stress and you may not want to you may not want to be in that race so you just pass on both what do you do if current events change how a book would be perceived do you go back and edit postpone cancel or is there like a mysterious fourth option the shorter answer is Yes, <laughs> we do all of that. This is this is kind of my job, which is like constantly balancing the list and moving things up, back, based on current events. Um, 
in political books also, I do this, I think a few different political book editors do this, you might make some bets on the roulette wheel. You might bet on red and black, meaning you might notice that the country is heading one way in one political cycle and it's due for a backlash or, or going to move in another direction in the next cycle. And so what I mean to say is that I'm going to acquire books that it speak to both audiences, the left and the right. And uh, depending on where the pendulum swings in our political system, one book might do better than the other, but I have both bets on the table. We edit, we postpone, we speed up. I rarely, never, ever try to cancel a book because of events. That's just not, that's just not cool. You have to find a way. Is it harder for stories dealing with triggers or dark themes to get published than other books that don't touch on those? This was an audience question. Yeah, it can be, but I'm trying to think of a world where we're all just reading books that are light and sweet. And I don't think that exists. Let me recommend a book by a woman who I went to school with back in Dallas. Group is by Christy Tate. It is about her life through group therapy, working through things in Christy's life. And it's really hard reading sometimes because it's so raw. It's very visceral, but it's really well written. And that book is full of triggers and dark stuff, but it's great. I would have to say that commercially, it might actually be a benefit to have all of that stuff because that's what makes that unique. That's what made Christie's book a pick for the Reese Witherspoon book club, which made it a bestseller and gave it a lot of great success. That was its strength. So it's a very good question, but I think readers tend to gravitate towards the the problematic and the complex and the dark. And yes, there are obvious cases where reading is an escape. It's lighter fare than that. But I think of it as a feature, not a bug. Since you deal with nonfiction, do you think that there's a lot more darker themes or triggers in than what there would be in fictional books, like 9-11 or like war books? Yeah, it's the use of the word trigger that brings me back to like recovery, substance abuse, depression, you know, people who have trouble. Like, so what triggers those things? So trigger to me is like a very specific kind of book. And I'm not thinking about politics or war or traditional nonfiction categories. I'm thinking more personal memoir and people's struggles. Mm. The general nonfiction categories like politics, history, or current affairs. Let's take each one. Politics, unfortunately, hyperpartisanship does drive sales. In history, history's dark. It has to be complex and compelling. Abraham Lincoln is a very complex and sometimes dark individual, very melancholic. And current affairs, well, the world we live in is full of like dark and triggering subjects, and they can be difficult and challenging. So books about mass incarceration, books about the opioid epidemic, books about crime or social justice, equality, these are books that should be published, but they can be difficult commercially to find their audiences. 
The next few questions, by the way, are just audience questions. Yeah. Should an author worry if their advance is low that their book won't sell well? They should worry about that no matter what the advance is and do everything that's in their control to spread word of mouth, connect with the book community, whether through social media or just hand-selling the book, getting in early with your book publishing team and figuring out the best strategies and plan for maximizing its audience. So, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't worry necessarily about your level of advance, but just focus on the things that you can control. I wish I could sit here and say, write the best book possible and then give it to the publisher and you're in good hands. I think that you are in good hands, but the race is only half run, okay? You have to now bring it across the finish line in terms of promoting and marketing it. And that's part of the writer's job as well as the publisher's job. I love that answer. Are advances or royalties more important for an author? I guess uh, this question was meaning like about like longevity is what I'm assuming. It is nice when you get royalties. That means the book has worked and that the publisher's making money and you're making money. Everybody's happy. But that's not to say that you can't take an advance, not earn out, but the publisher still makes enough money with you for it to be profitable to keep publishing with you. So there's a calculation for that, that an agent or that your publisher can help you with. So it's a sort of a tricky question. It's not an either or advance or royalties. It's again, a question. I would say that the thing you want to focus on from book to book to book is growth. You know, it's like, what are we doing this time? to grow the the readership and make it better. I wouldn't focus too much on what my royalty checks are. It is nice if you're getting paid a little bit more advance along the way. Everybody wants that, right? Everybody wants like a, a newer and bigger contract. But sometimes slow and steady wins the race. And so just make sure you're growing your readership and then advances and royalties take care of itself. So going off of growth, what is the standard print run for a book from a new author? Because obviously the more popular an author is, the more the publisher can bank on like, oh, we're going to sell lots of copies. It's really hard to say, Zara. It could be in nonfiction, it could be anywhere from 10 to 100,000. It depends because you're talking about a first-time author who could be Taylor Swift or a first-time author who could be a historian at Fordham University. I think for the sake of this question, the audience member was not thinking of like, you're a celebrity and this is your first time writing a book. Maybe you're, maybe you are an expert in your field, like you said, with the professor at Fordham, or maybe you're literally no one. Right. Let's say it is that. Let's say you're a first time author, subject matter expert. This is your first trade commercial run at a book. I think your expectations for a first print run should be somewhere between 10 and 20,000 copies. Can they be way more because you have a great story or a great idea or you're a first-time writer who's covering some sort of true crime and it's more than that? Absolutely. But what I do, politics, history, current affairs, memoir, biography, first-time writers should expect somewhere in the range of 10 to 25,000 copies in their first print run. 
Are you still constrained to two-month lifespan of a book as determined by physical bookstores opposed to the extended online life? Good question. And a good recognition that, yeah, there is a lot of focus on the front list. The first eight weeks of sale are critical. And that's how Barnes & Noble and Amazon sort of, they have algorithms for determining, well, if it does X, it'll do Y over its life. But let me say this. For all of those books on our list that really the majority of their sales come in the first two months, and that is where the focus of the promotion and the marketing effort is, for all of that, there are a lot of books on our list that sell for years. They'll sell maybe 50 copies a week, sometimes 100. They go into paperback and they chug along, and I love that. Every publisher loves that because that's word of mouth. That's the strange alchemy, not science, to this, that books take on lives of their own. There's something very special about what we do when a book backlists like that, when paperbacks go on for years and years. So this is sort of like, a yes, that's the commercial reality because of algorithmic analytical thinking in book publishing, but the backlist is where all the dreams are made. <laughs> I personally love that answer. Thanks. <laughs> mm-hmm. Did being a publisher help you out as an author? You know, you've said multiple times that you have the empathy of being on multiple sides of it. As a writer, you just want to hear it's going to be okay. And as a publisher, author care is of consummate importance that that you're working with the writer to make the best product, but make sure that they're okay. And realizing that this is a personal, subjective business and a little bit neurotic and you need to take care of these people. And that's what we set out to do. The final question is, what is one thing you wish writers knew about book publishing? We're wrong all the time, okay? (laughs) (laughs) And Big Five Publishing is done on an island off the coast of America. So... We have a very warped view of the world. We do love stories. We're good people. My advice to writers is find a way to make your editor and your publishing people your best advocates. And hint, it's not by writing them long emails. It involves conversations. It involves calls. It involves getting to know your people and building those relationships because publishing is people. The books come and go, but you're sort of bonded to the people in this world that you work with. And so you got to honor that. And final little bit of advice, just keep hacking at it. You're only a writer if you write every day and exercise those muscles. So just keep going and keep getting better at it. And hopefully the rest will take care of itself. I was going to say, this has been like so informative and so much fun. Oh, good. Yeah, like this has just been great. And I know like Zara, whenever she brings on people, she's already familiar with them. And like I said, I'm just the lady from Appalachia. (laughs) (laughs) I just like write in and meet people, but like, I'm probably going to get off here and then like go talk to my partner and be like, oh my gosh. So we just did this and it was so like so much fun and so great. (laughs) Oh, good. Yeah. No, Kelly will get nervous and I'll be like. First of all, I wouldn't put you in a bad situation. Second of all, they're very nice people. And that's why I'm asking them. (laughs) 
awesome. I had a great time doing it. I'm so in, I'm flattered that you asked me. Of course. And I just wanted to give people some advice and help because I know there's a lot of people trying to do it. This is the Writish Podcast, and we'll be back with another episode next week when we'll be talking about the sci-fi genre in another genre gossip episode. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the Writish Podcast, on Twitter at write underscore ish, and on Kofi at writish. Bye. Bye.